Well, good morning, everyone. How are you today? It's good to see you, and it's good to be here this morning. My name is Josh White. I am the executive assistant to the lead pastor here at LBC, which is just a fancy way of saying that I work closely with Pastor Eric. Uh, It is hard to describe how much of a privilege it is to be here with you today for the preaching of God's Word. As we begin, I want to mention just a few announcements. Uh, First, if you're new, we want to say welcome. We're so glad that you chose uh, to join us for church this morning. We also have a guest welcome kiosk in the courtyard that you can go to. Uh, We'd love to meet you and answer any questions you might have about our church. Secondly, the men are headed home today from our men's camp out this weekend. And so let's open with a word of prayer and also pray for their safe travels. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people this morning. We gather to worship you, to hear from your word, and to encourage one another. We do lift up the men who are coming back from men's camp out this weekend. We ask that you would keep them safe as they travel home to their families. We pray that the things that they learn from your word this weekend would make them more like you. And God, we thank you for the gospel, that we who trust in Christ are forgiven of our sins through Christ's death in our place and his resurrection. As we open your word, help us understand it so that we might grow in holiness and godliness for your glory alone. Amen. Last week, we finished up our series on discipleship, and today we are starting the book of 1 Samuel. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapters 1 and 2. We've titled our series in 1 Samuel, God is King. God is King. This is the theme that we will consistently see as we study uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So keep it on the forefront of your mind as we uh, study this book of the Bible over the next few months. Before we dive into our chapters for today, It is important that we understand the context of 1 Samuel so that we understand the book in light of the whole story of Scripture. Since we're uh, starting the book this morning, I'm going to give you a little bit more context than we normally would on a Sunday morning, so just bear with me. So after the fall of mankind with Adam and Eve, God promises a savior from the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent. That's what we see in Genesis 3, verse 15. 
Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see God's plan for salvation unfolding through the nation of Israel. Because this was the lineage that God chose to bring the Savior through. In God's dealings with the people of Israel, it's important to understand that he made promises to Israel in the form of covenants. Two of the covenants in the Old Testament that are important to understand are known as the Abrahamic covenant and also the Davidic covenant. And I'll summarize those for you just briefly. The Abrahamic covenant involves God promising Abraham offspring. In other words, he promises that from Abraham would come a nation, the nation of Israel. And then he also promises that that nation would have a specific land that they would dwell in or a promised land. And then the Lord promises that he would bless Israel and also that through Israel, the, the rest of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 12. And we learn in the New Testament in Galatians that that blessing, that promise of blessing, was the promise of the gospel for the people of Israel and also for the nations of the earth. The Davidic covenant involves God promising that David's throne would be established forever, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to write that down. And so in other words, that there would be a king to reign from the throne of David forever. So it is because of these covenants that the nation of Israel was expecting to live in a specific land, and they were expecting to be ruled by a human king. And we see the unfolding of that in history in the Old Testament as God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so leading up to the book of 1 Samuel, there are several major events that happen that are kind of important to understand. And a commentator uh, summarized these major events in this way. He says this, The sequence in history was, one, the exodus from Egypt and journey to the eastern edge of the promised land. That's what we see in Exodus through Deuteronomy. Two, the entrance into and conquest of the land, which we see in the book of Joshua. And then three, the period of the earliest settlement of the promised land, which is Judges and Ruth. And then four, the beginning of the monarchy in First and Second Samuel, or the beginning of Israel being ruled by a human king. And so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a timeline as far as what comes before Samuel, the events that lead up to 1 Samuel. And so in the book of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel are living in the land that God promised them. However, in their disobedience, they did not conquer all of the land that God gave them. And they did not destroy the other nations that lived in the land. 
the consequence of this is that they continue in their disobedience, worshiping the gods of the nations among them, just as God said that they would, which is in Exodus 23. And so consequently, in 1 Samuel, the people of Israel desire a king like that of the other nations, rather than a king who cared about the things God cares about. I'll repeat that. The people of Israel desire a king like that of the other nations, rather than a king who cared about the things God cares about. This is the primary dilemma that we see in 1 Samuel. And so in light of this, the events of 1 Samuel can be kind of summarized in this way. In the first part of 1 Samuel, we see that God raises up Samuel the prophet to speak to Israel. And then after that, we see Saul reigning, but also failing as the king that Israel desired. And then after that, the kingship transfers to David, who ultimately points to Christ, who will reign as Savior and King from the throne of David forever. So now that we've gone over some of the context, the remaining question is, how do we see the theme that God is King in our text today. I think we learn three principles about God being king in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. Our first principle this morning is that God is king over life. God is king over life. We see this from the first ch chapter of 1 Samuel. In the opening verses, we're introduced to a man named, named Elkanah. And in verse 2, we learned that Elkanah had two wives, Penina and Hannah. Verses 2 through 8 then go on to explain that Penina had children, but Hannah could not have children. And so naturally, Hannah is heartbroken that she cannot have children. But to make matters worse, Penina is described as her rival who irritated her and provoked her and made fun of her because she could not have children. Hannah, being a woman that knew the Lord, went to the tabernacle consistently to pray and talk to God. And we see her petition before the Lord in verses 9 through 11. Let's read that section. 
chapter 1, starting in verse 9. It says this, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And so following Hannah's request, Eli the priest blesses her and says that the Lord will indeed answer her prayer. And then Hannah leaves the tabernacle in peace and is no longer in distress. And then in the following verses, the Lord gives Hannah a son named Samuel, and in the right time, he is dedicated to the service of the Lord in the tabernacle. That's what we see happening in chapter 1. We must be careful about how we seek to apply this passage. There is the temptation to think, that the Lord answered Hannah's prayer solely due to her sincere faith. There is no doubt that Hannah's faith was sincere. However, many of us will pray from a sincere faith and the Lord's answer will be no. Rather, as king over life, God answers prayers according to his own will and according to his own good purposes. In answering Hannah's prayer, God raises up the faithful prophet Samuel to speak to Israel on his behalf. So what is the application then? To know God is king over life is to wholeheartedly trust him. To know that God is king over life is to wholeheartedly trust him. That is to say we trust him with everything that pertains to to life. Whatever is going on in your life currently, do you trust the Lord with it? Are you bringing your struggles and your anxieties and even your joys before the Lord and trusting his answers to your prayers? And more specifically, we trust that God is the one who gives life. This passage, in a unique way, forces us to think about our perspective on children. 
If you have children, you must be on guard against idolizing them. We need to trust that our children first do not belong to us, but that they belong to the Lord. We must trust the Lord's plans for the lives of our children and be faithful to disciple them. If you don't have children, or if you cannot have children, or if you have lost children, know that the Lord cares for you deeply and hears your prayers. We must trust that his plan for us is good, even when it doesn't seem like it. And so again, our first principle for this morning is that God is king over life. Our second principle is that God is king over creation. God is king over creation. Hannah's response to God answering her prayer is worship. Just as she worshiped God before he answered her prayer, so after she also worships him. And we see this in the form of prayer at the beginning of chapter 2. What is interesting about Hannah's prayer is that it has less to do with the fact that God has answered her prayer, and it has more to do with who God is in his character and nature. More specifically, we see that God is not a God who has created everything only to leave it alone. Rather, God is intimately involved in his creation and rules over it as king. Let's look at Hannah's prayer a little bit more closely to see how we see that in the text. I've summarized it uh, for you so we can see it a little bit more clearly. So in Hannah's prayer, we see that the Lord is holy. The Lord is the only God. The Lord is a God of knowledge. The Lord weighs the actions of man. The Lord provides for the hungry. The Lord provides for the barren. The Lord kills and brings life. The Lord provides for the poor. The Lord humbles and exalts. The Lord owns the earth. The Lord will protect his children. The Lord will destroy the wicked. The Lord will judge everyone. And the Lord will strengthen his anointed king. 
hopefully you can see it clearly that God has not created everything and then left it alone. But that the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord. It is fitting then that God rules over his creation as king and is intimately involved in what happens on earth. And so what application comes from this? To know that God is king over creation is to humbly submit to him. To know that God is king over creation is to humbly submit to him. When we see that God is king over creation, we at the same time recognize that we are not king over creation. And so our response should be humble submission. To give some practical examples of this, we submit to what God identifies as sin. What he calls sin, we call sin. We submit to his design for marriage, gender, and sexuality. We submit to his design for the church. We submit to his plan for salvation. That there is only salvation in Christ's substitutionary atonement. We submit to how God desires us to live as followers of Christ. We do not submit partially. We do not pick and choose what we submit to. Rather, we submit to everything he has revealed in his word because he is king over creation, and we are not. And so again, our second principle this morning is that God is king over creation. Our last principle for today is that God is king over death. God is king over death. In the final verses of chapter 2, the narrative takes quite a turn from what we've seen in chapter 1. In contrast to Hannah, the focus is on Eli the priest's sons and their disobedience. This contrast is striking because If there is anyone in the narrative we would expect to know God, it would be the priest and his sons. And if there's anyone in the narrative that we would 
expect to possibly rebel against God, it would be Hannah, who's struggling because she cannot have children. Yet this is not the case. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Verse 12 reads, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. From here in verses 13 through 25, they go on to detail the disobedience of Eli's sons by saying that they forcefully took the meat that was being sacrificed to eat it for themselves. And they took advantage of the women who were serving in the tabernacle. The consequence for their disobedience is given in verses 31 through 33. Let's go ahead and read those. Chapter 2, starting in verse 31, says this, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. We are reminded consistently from Genesis 2 onward that disobedience always leads to death. Disobedience may give us satisfaction for a short while, but it always leads to death. However, it is not as if we are left without hope. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 concludes our section for today with this statement. It says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. This refers to the line of priests that would replace Eli's household during the reign of Solomon. Those priests would be characterized by their faithful obedience to the Lord. So what is the application? To know God is king over death is to faithfully obey him. To know God is king over death is to faithfully obey him. 
as king, God decides what sin is and what the punishment for sin is. And he has decided that the punishment for disobedience is death. And not only physical death, but eternal death and eternal suffering. Eli's sons did not know God and were therefore characterized by disobedience and suffered death. In contrast, those who know God are characterized by faithful obedience. The only way to escape eternal death and suffering is by trusting in Christ who died in our place and received the punishment we deserve. We respond to the greatness of that truth by faithfully obeying his commands, by doing what is in his heart and his mind, rather than continuing in disobedience. Yet remember that it was the Lord who brought up the faithful priests. Our obedience is ultimately God's work in our lives and not solely of our own doing. And we faithfully obey him not to earn our salvation, not to be good moral people, but because God has delivered us from eternal death and reconciled us to himself. And so God is king over death. As we conclude this morning, remember that theme that God is king. He is always a better king than we are. And remember our principles from this morning about God being king. God is king over life, so we must trust him wholeheartedly. God is king over creation, so we must submit to him humbly. And God is king over death, so we must obey him faithfully. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. Thank you that you are king and that you are a faithful king who reigns over everything. Help us to live out your word this week for your glory alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We also have the privilege this morning of taking communion together. Communion is very simply a tangible reminder of the gospel. We are reminded of Christ's death in our place. 
The bread reminds us of his body, which was broken for us. And the cup reminds us of his blood, which was shed for us. All of this was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. We are also told in 1 Corinthians 11 that as we take communion together, we proclaim his death until he comes. God is king and Christ is coming back as the conquering king for his people. Take a minute this morning to confess your sins, to remember the gospel, to remember and rejoice at the fact that God is king and he will return for us. Then you can take the elements as you feel led. If you haven't placed your trust in Christ, we ask that you wouldn't take communion this morning. And we would encourage you to consider your standing before the Lord and consider trusting in him today for the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation to him. If you need a communion cup, there's extra in the back and also in the lobby. Remember, there are two sides to the cup. You can open the side with the bread first and then open the side with the juice. I'll pray again, and then you can spend some time with the Lord and take the elements as you feel led. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your death in our place. We confess that left to ourselves, we would never choose you. We would continue in our disobedience and in our rebellion against you. So we thank you for the gospel that it is your work. We confess our sins to you now, the ways in which we've done wrong against you. We remember the gospel and we rejoice that you have saved us and reconciled us to yourself for those who trust in you. May you receive all the glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.